0: Welcome to Optimal, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby, and this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDx.com and check out our resources on the site now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Well, welcome, everybody. This is Dr. Dickon Weatherby from optimal DX. Welcome to optimal the podcast. I'm joined by Beth Allen Delulio in Naples. Hey, Beth. Hello, hello. And we are delighted to have with us today a special guest, Dr. Deanna Minnick. She's a nutrition scientist, international lecturer, teacher and author over 20 years of experience in academia and in the food and dietary supplement industries. She's the author of six consumer books on wellness topics, five book chapters, and 50 scientific publications. And we will definitely be diving into a publication that she just published last year in the journal Nutrients entitled, Is Melatonin the Next Vitamin D? And melatonin is going to be our topic today. Her academic background in nutrition science includes a master of science degree in human nutrition and dietetics from the University of Illinois in Chicago and a doctorate in medical sciences nutrition focus from the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. And for a decade, she was part of the research team led by none other than Dr. Jeffrey Bland, the father of functional medicine and has served on the nutrition advisory board for the Institute of Functional Medicine as well as on the board of directors for the American Nutrition Association. Dr. Menick, welcome to Optimal. How are you today?
1: I'm doing great. So glad to be here with both of you to talk about one of my favorite topics.
0: Well, we are super (laughs) excited. We're going to be talking about melatonin. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll definitely put a link to your article in the notes for the podcast. But the article is called, Is Melatonin the Next Vitamin D: A Review of Emerging Science, Clinical Uses, Safety and Dietary Supplements from the Journal Nutrients published in September 2022. So we have a mixed audience here, Deanna. So why don't we just start right at the beginning? Let's just kind of do a little overview on melatonin, what it is. Maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the melatonin imbalances. What are some of the symptoms? So let's start at the beginning, shall we?
1: Sure. So what is melatonin? Melatonin is an endolamine. It's a molecule essentially. And it's been identified in the pineal gland of animals. And that was way back into the late 1950s. And then from there, I would say that we began to identify that melatonin was basically everywhere. Melatonin is in the human body. It's manufactured in the human body. It's made by plants, it's used as a growth factor in plants and actually spurs the development in plants of certain phytochemicals that can be beneficial. So it's a compound and it's been around in our environment probably since our existence quite honestly. Many times I see it referred to as an ancient molecule, it's been referred to as nature's most versatile biological signal that was in one of the papers that we put into the review. So it's also been referred to, this might be of interest for your audience, as the darkness hormone. And in the paper, one of the things that we talk about was how we think that darkness deficiency is pervasive, that we hear so much about people getting a lot of light or not getting light or looking at circadian rhythm, but specifically sunlight and vitamin D. And I think that the counterpart to that is looking at darkness because melatonin is a hormone that is produced by the pineal gland, which is in the brain during the height of darkness. Now, I also wanna say that melatonin is also produced throughout the body, particularly Mm -hmm. in the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. So it has some relationship to metabolism, to oxidative stress. It's also produced in large amounts in the gut. Now that is not necessarily connected to circadian rhythm and darkness. That melatonin, it seems to be connected to more of a metabolic signal and may just be used locally within the gut or with limited circulation. So melatonin is intriguing from this perspective of many people thinking of it in a silo as a hormone, but yet it seems to be a generic biological signal where depending on where it's produced, and used, it can vary. So it's not always seen as a hormone by all body tissues.
0: And Deanna, is the molecule itself the same, whether it's producing the pineal gland in the gut, or does it have a different functional group on it, or is it, is it, it is the same? My know, understanding
1: is it. it is the same molecule, okay. yeah. And one of the things I do want to mention too, is that because of its molecular structure, it is an antioxidant, Mm. you know, I don't often like to use that term because I feel like we've progressed in phytochemical science beyond just seeing plant compounds as antioxidants. But what is unique about the melatonin molecule is that it is considered to be an amphiphilic antioxidant, meaning that it likes fat and it likes water. So it can traverse throughout the body and all of the different body compartments. So when you ask, is melatonin different compositionally in the different body systems? Well, it's not different as a molecule, but it can play in different areas Mm -hmm. in a variety of ways, depending on if there's a fat-loving tissue like the brain, because as we know, the brain is very selective about what gets over that barrier, or in the blood or more of a watery tissue of the body where Typically, you would see vitamin C hanging Mm -hmm. out rather than something lipid soluble.
0: Very cool. And people are obviously taking melatonin supplementally. You talk in your article about melatonin imbalance. What are some of the symptoms that that result in? I mean, we're all about assessments at Optimal DX. You know, it's like assessment and how do we identify when when there is imbalance in the body? If we're looking at melatonin, are there some pretty interesting symptoms that we would pay attention to to kind of make us think? melatonin might be out of balance in this patient?
1: Well, just to step back for a second, rather than even thinking about imbalance, let's just think about age. There's a lot of focus on longevity, on aging, on being vital. And one of the interesting things about melatonin and its endogenous production, so how the body produces it, is that children have the highest levels of melatonin. In fact, as kids, we produce the most amount of melatonin that we're gonna produce throughout our whole lifespan. So when we see, and you know, when we have infants, now infants kind of have that slow ramp up, so up to three months, and if the mother is nursing, then, you know, many times you're changing melatonin levels in that child that way. But typically, melatonin is peaking in early childhood. This is the highest peak possible. But what happens thereafter is that the levels kind of come down like a roller coaster, you know, kind of like that gentle slide downward. And by the time we get into the mid 50s, we're almost bottomed out from an endogenous level in terms of what we're actually producing. And then by the time we get into the 60s and 70s, not to scare anybody, but we're really (laughs) at the bottom of the barrel of our own endogenous melatonin. So if you think about chronic disease and the risk, and when certain diseases start to rear their head, they seem to coincide to some degree with Mm -hmm. this decline of melatonin. So when you ask me, well, Deanna, what are the symptoms of melatonin deficiency? And how do we know if we need melatonin? I think first we just have to step back because your podcast is about how do you optimize one's lifespan and health span. And this is something that, we look at all the different hormones. All the different hormones are making that steep decline. So I don't wanna just say that it's all about melatonin. We need to look at the web of the endocrine system. We need to look at circadian rhythm because all of those hormones are tethered to our circadian rhythm. We know that cortisol and testosterone are high in the morning. Melatonin is high at night. So if we're shifting melatonin or if we're shifting cortisol, let's just say somebody is very stressed. So -hmm. they've got issues with cortisol production or they're in andropause. They're a man who is going through his 50s, 60s, and he's andropausal. Mm -hmm. So I'd want to be thinking about melatonin in in just about everybody because Mm -hmm. so many people are stressed. So many people are starting to see preclinical signs of all kinds of symptoms happening even in the thirties and I would even say in the twenties, just to be thinking about the changes that are happening. So from a symptom perspective, I, I think we first need to look at the lifespan yeah. and how do we optimize. But I will chunk out for you and we can dialogue further on going through each of the body systems and what might be a red flag there from a melatonin perspective.
0: Well I love that answer because I think it does put it into the perspective as you said of the neuroendocrine system. I'm just wondering if they're ever going to come up with a melatonin pause or something.
2: Uh, yeah. Oh, I like that.
0: that. Well, I don't know. It's like they put pause at the end you, of everything. You
1: better hurry it. up and yeah. trademark that. That is
2: brilliant. Melatonin
0: pause, a, melatonopause, <laughs> a to- Tony pause? Yeah, whatever. I um, like it. Yeah.
2: Can I ask a quick question? I'm Deanna, sorry. I did notice in the paper, when you talked about stress and cortisol, it said that the actual conversion of tryptophan to serotonin and melatonin was shunted away. And I thought that was really interesting. Is that something you can recover from quickly?
1: It's difficult. And we actually did look at the biochemical breakdown of that conversion of tryptophan to serotonin, to melatonin. Mm -hmm. It Mm -hmm. requires multiple enzymes. And one of them that really was a red flag for me was that one of those enzymes is a methyltransferase. And I'm sure that your listeners are quite astute and are aware of potential nutritional issues with methylation. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. we bring in conversation now about gene variants, and gene variants can be seen in melatonin receptors on cells as much as methylation pathways. So the efficiency of going from tryptophan to serotonin to melatonin is not optimal. And also, Just a small percentage of the tryptophan is being shunted into that pathway whereas the majority is going into the kynurenin pathway which is responsible for more of that, I would say, stress response, nerve cell balance and health. So it's pretty difficult to just drive at melatonin just by getting more tryptophan. It's good and fine to have more tryptophan in the diet depending on the individual. But I don't think that it's always a clear-cut, streamlined pathway to getting your melatonin in that particular manner.
2: Well, especially mm-hmm. in distress, it seems, right? Under stress and high cortisol.
1: Correct. Yes, and that's actually more your question. Under stress and high cortisol, is going to move that pathway away from making melatonin, and it's going to shunt it into more of the kynurenin pathway, which is already the predominant pathway.
0: So what, when, I mean, mm-hmm. when I hear you talking about Serotonin and things and my mind goes to antidepressants, SSRIs. Is there interactions that you know of between for people that may be taking those medications and the ability to synthesize their own melatonin?
1: There is actually a number of different contraindications based on medication that should be checked out by a healthcare practitioner and or pharmacist. One of the things that we know about melatonin is that it goes metabolically through cytochrome 1A2. That's the predominant or the major cytochrome system that metabolizes melatonin. Much like other hormones, it still goes through phase one and phase two metabolism, which is usually through the liver. You know, the bulk of that is going through the liver. So yes, if people are taking medications that require that particular enzyme or it can change based on the activity of that enzyme, then there needs to be some caution. So Mm -hmm. yeah. There is a list of different medications, and you would definitely want to be thinking about an SSRI as well as some of the other ones. And I Very see cool. they're all
2: listed too, right in your paper, which is nice.
1: Yeah, we have a short list of okay. some okay. of those, but antidepressants are ones I think about. Even blood sugar lowering type of drugs. Now, most people wouldn't be thinking about that, mm-hmm. but melatonin does have some impact on blood sugar has impacts on blood thinning, could have some changes in alertness. So if people are on sedatives and even immunosuppressive drugs, there should be some evaluation there because one of the biggest uses of melatonin is for the immune system. And in fact, that's kind of what piqued my interest was that Mm -hmm. during the pandemic, what we saw was that in articles, there was a discussion about nutrients that were required for the immune system, like zinc and vitamin Mm -hmm. C and Those were some of the top ones. But then also melatonin came into that conversation and it was almost like melatonin was being treated much like a nutrient in the way of mentioning these other vitamins and minerals. And of course, vitamin D was along in that discussion. So yes, I do think we need to look at the overall composite and we do need to be smart about how much melatonin is provided and look at personalized use.
0: Very cool. I wonder if we could dive into a little bit more around darkness deficiency, because I know this is something that you touch on a lot in the article, and then obviously comparing it with vitamin D. I wonder if you could touch in on that a little bit and maybe what ways is melatonin like vitamin D in some ways?
1: I love this because nobody has really touched on darkness in the way that, you know, I had seen already in the scientific literature, melatonin was being called the darkness hormone. But we weren't really connecting it into the environment in modern day and what was happening. And as you both can already probably see in your own lives, there is a high degree of exposure to artificial blue light at night by most people. And, you know, I get concerned about kids, too, because kids are on their iPads, their iPhones, they're they're on technology, they're watching television. We don't live by candlelight and a fireplace anymore, right? (laughs) We don't have the proper red light at night because I'm a big color person. I'm all about the rainbow. And there are certain wavelengths of light that our retina is supposed to be keying into at certain times of day in order to signal our biological rhythms. I think that the circadian rhythm system Mm -hmm. is at the helm of so many things of our endocrine system and and our retina is really key for this. So darkness deficiency is when we do not have adequate exposure of darkness into the evening hours. Now we just had daylight saving time so we had that 1 hour <laughs> shift forward which yeah. really rocks everybody's <laughs> circadian rhythm and also that darkness deficiency. Now we've got an extra hour of light towards the evening hours. If we look at the cumulative biochemical and physiological effects of that, I think that they're pretty pronounced. And there's Mm -hmm. already some literature looking at alertness the next day, traffic accidents, all kinds of translations. So darkness deficiency is when we simply do not obey the natural rhythms that are present in our environment. So we're not getting proper amounts of darkness late at night because we're blocking that receptivity by the retina. So we're actually getting an overexposure to this blue enriched light, which is telling our body that we should be awake Mm. and that we need to produce cortisol. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're not getting the red. And, you know, it's really beautiful because with melatonin, too, there's kind of this staged progression of amping up the synthesis in our body. And it's called dim light melatonin onset. So Mm -hmm. as the light gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer throughout the day we start to produce more and more melatonin. And so if we, let's just say that we come home from work, we're in fluorescent lighting at work in an office, and then we come home, and then we flick on all of the switches, we've got the TB blaring, and our eyes again are enriched with all of this blue light. Our body is not getting the signal through the retina, which then communicates to the brain and ultimately to the pineal gland to produce that melatonin that signals us to sleep or at least that it's time to set those clock genes in motion, right? To kind of get things in that circadian balance. So then we have kind of this cliff where we have all of this light and no progression into darkness. And then we even take our phones into bed with us. (laughs) So it's like, there's no gentle graduation of light into that. So one of our medical team members, so I work with a group called Symphony Natural Health that does make a plant melatonin called herbitonin. And Dr. Katherine Darley is a sleep medicine expert. And she was saying that in her patients, she was just seeing this and that we really needed to call this to the forefront. So we decided to put that term into the paper to really bring up darkness deficiency. And in fact, we ended up creating a, do you have darkness deficiency Questionnaire for people mm-hmm. so that they could assess that. And there are some hacks. We can talk about some hacks for getting mm-hmm. around that because, quite honestly, I don't think most people stop their work or stop being on devices after 6 p.m. or so, right? So, you mean so the, night, think- the, the, <laughs> the,
0: the night shift setting on my iPad doesn't work?
1: <laughs> well, actually, that's going to be helpful. So, there are a couple of things. And if you want, I can share. There's an app. Let me just look at my. I'm phone.
0: all about sharing things, so yeah. Are you things. okay? Oh, yeah. All right, I want yeah. to share so
1: some. This is, uh, so this is about
0: how we optimize our lives, so you mm-hmm. know, some people Very are good. using devices. So yeah, go for it.
1: So one thing is just what you said is to change the setting on your computer or iPad or whatever you're using to first of all dim the light, bring it down, mm. and then there is also an app called Flux F L dot UX that will change the redness. A lot of computers actually automatically do this. I actually have that on my
0: computer, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so that's good. But I would say in addition to that, that's one layer. But I like an additional layer, which is then to wear the blue light blocking glasses at night. And then you have an added layer. So I use them. In fact, I start using my blue light blocking glasses towards the afternoon or if my eyes feel strained. There is so much in the way of what is happening with people's eyes these days. In fact, eye health, retinal health, so many more cases of age-related macular degeneration. And if if we do not have our eyes intact, that signal, the circadian rhythm, will start to lose its integrity. So we even see that people are blind have melatonin disturbances, right? The production Mm. is impaired. So it is very important to make sure that we take care of our eyes. And one of the things in the back of the eye, you have the macula, and the macula is a very important feature of vision. And so concentrated in that macula would be these xanthophils or these carotenoids that are found in nature. So lutein and zeaxanthin, mm-hmm. the yellow mm-hmm. green xanthophils. Yep. And so those would be very protective of blue light. And we talk about those in the article as well. My master's thesis was on carotenoids. So I've done a lot of research Mm -hmm, on these mm -hmm. plant compounds and they embed into our body in certain places in order to confer certain functions. So really important to be protecting your retina with lutein Mm -hmm. and zeaxanthin, which have copious literature. Mm -hmm. suggesting that they may help to reduce the risk of things like age-related macular degeneration.
0: Oh, I love it, yeah.
2: May I ask you, Deanna, is there a way to test? We talked about this a little bit earlier. What is the best way to test to see if somebody might have the symptoms, but they're not quite sure, they're doing everything right, but they might still have low melatonin at night, let's say. What is the best way to test to address?
1: Well, we've actually looked into this a bit and I don't really, we touched on this very lightly in the article. There are a number of testing options, right? So there's saliva. Saliva is used by many different labs, mostly because of its ease. It's also been found that salivary testing is pretty comparable to serum testing. So then there's obviously also serum or blood. But the most common way to assess melatonin is actually to look at urine, which is also pretty easy, just like saliva would be. So there is a specific metabolite from melatonin that is typically Mm -hmm. excreted into the urine. And so what many labs are doing is they measure that. The only problem here, you know, I love labs, but to me, labs are points in time. And if you don't get the time correct, and we know that time is everything, then that becomes problematic for interpretation and what you actually find out. So some best practices with labs would be consecutive testing of melatonin. In other words, a couple of days in a row, because just as we were just talking about, if somebody is stressed out, or mm-hmm. let's just say that they're eating light, let's just say that they have darkness deficiency, where mm-hmm. they have too much artificial blue light, you'll get what they're producing under those conditions. So what I think is probably most important is to look at physical symptoms first, and to evaluate a number of other things like circadian rhythm. One of the biggest imbalances arise in people that, what I would refer to as shift work syndrome, Mm -hmm. right? Shift work, any shift worker, you can already anticipate that there would be imbalances in circadian rhythm, and thereby there could be an issue with melatonin. So I think for that population across the board, jet lag, absolutely great data to suggest that bringing in melatonin would be helpful for reestablishing circadian rhythm. So anytime there's a circadian rhythm imbalance, you can surmise that melatonin would be off. And in fact, just even daylight savings time, that would be key for now reestablishing better balance with melatonin, any kind of seasonal shift Mm -hmm. as well. But you know, you can even look at all of the different laboratory tests and we've gone through them with our medical team. And you can see that there are many different considerations that the labs will propose For example, even changing your posture can change melatonin levels. (laughs) So, you know, age is a factor. Genetics may alter secretion of melatonin. There's a whole aspect of, as I mentioned before, about the melatonin receptors, but then also secretion. So looking again at personalized use, gender, there can be changes in women versus men. I often think about Women. Okay. So I'll just, in full disclosure, I am a perimenopausal woman. I'm 52 and I just know that my melatonin is off. My sleep is completely erratic. And Mm. so what I have needed to do was bring in higher dose plant melatonin. So I have brought in six milligrams right before bedtime Mm. to help me to override a lot of the dysfunction that was happening with sleep. So I would say if there are certain indications where somebody is waking up at night between 2 and 4 a.m. And I don't know about you, but classically, from a clinical perspective, I had seen that over and over again, seeing people. And oftentimes I would say, oh, well, maybe it's a blood sugar imbalance or you know, maybe you need to eat something a little bit closer in. But the more I learned about melatonin, the more I realized that the peak for melatonin secretion from the pineal gland is actually between 2 and 4 a.m., And that coincides with other markers of repair, such Mm -hmm. as things like glutathione, catalase, superoxide dismutase, like all of those things are peaking between that two to 4 a.m. So to me, I also put it together where if people have a sleep disturbance or imbalance where they have that wake up between Mm -hmm. two and four, it might be something to consider that melatonin might be low, and thereby not being able to fully complete that sleep cycle because we don't have that high amount coming through between two and four. So at least for me, I have started to work with melatonin levels just to tweak them for myself because especially in perimenopausal women, they do get that wake up. The more you talk with them, the more literature you see. People with blood sugar imbalances, we don't want to rule out and just say it's only melatonin we need to look at the bigger picture of that person's life right but it is definitely something to consider yeah.
0: to okay back. disclosure here i'm a 53 year old andropausal male
1: oh right on <laughs> we're, we're all vibe into this together like, <laughs> by, yeah <laughs> bio our identifying ourselves
0: <laughs> so occasionally i will have to get up in the middle of the night to mm-hmm. urinate and it's usually between like 1:30 or 2 30 So I'm really curious. I did read an article basically saying that if you expose your retina to to light, which obviously the first thing one does, goes in about flip the light on, 2.30 at night, boom, your brain's getting now a blast of (laughs) white light or whatever it is. What impact does that have on, and this article is basically saying, well, it actually just shuts your melatonin levels. Yes,
1: that's correct. And in varying degrees, depending on the individual and the so intensity what can you of the do
0: light. about that other mm-hmm. than just like maybe have like a flashlight with a blue thing on you know <laughs> i mean i use my ipad on lowest and i just walk sit myself down. In. That's how, just i'm just kind of curious is it worth at that time <laughs> popping a melatonin would that help or
1: that might be something to consider but also just kind of doing a dim plug in light mm-hmm. is something because i've actually had this conversation with other people about people that may have less balance at night or yeah, have issues yeah. with mobility and so yeah. what do they do right yeah. so if they have like a small night light that will not change the luminosity per se like in a way to disturb melatonin mm-hmm. but it has a subtle kind of like do you ever just go to a hotel and they have that dim light mm-hmm. yeah. underneath <laughs> kind light. of like mm-hmm. that actually is quite good Mm-hmm. You I know, find that really it's, annoying,
0: but now, now it is now annoying. I'm it of- is <laughs> annoying,
1: but for people who get up, who have issues with if they're going to fall, or then they turn on that bright light, and it's so jarring and discomforting. To even aside from the melatonin, which yes, you are going to be changing that, especially at that very tender time of night when you mm-hmm. actually need it. So that could be one thing, or yes, have some small light that you can use to go to the bathroom with. Sweet. Well, oh and I, mean, I didn't mention yeah. you said you like hacks so let me just go back to that Love app hacks. I didn't I did not mention <laughs> there is an app called light meter there are all kinds of different apps yeah. out there to measure light in your environment mm-hmm. but ideally you want to get the lux so lux which is L U X is a measure of light or luminosity and you want you know daytime you're going to have like if you just hold up your phone using the app I'm actually holding mine right now and looking outside from my desk I'm at Holy smokes, I'm at 1800 lux. So that's bright. That's pretty saturated. Mm -hmm. It's a sunny day in Seattle. But at night, what you're aiming for is you want to get that down under three, under one even. And I've actually tested this. Dr. Darley has said before that let's just imagine you're in your bedroom at night and you put your hand out. You should not be able to see your fingers with Mm -hmm. your arm extended. That will just get a sense of, it should be so dark in your room Mm. that you can't see your fingers with that kind of distinct granularity, right? So, and you can test the lux. I've done that before to make sure that I'm at about one lux at night in the bedroom. And you know what? I have found this so irritating is like smoke alarms. They have that little dot, that
0: little dot of light. 25 feet up on the ceiling. I know.
1: know. (laughs) And we have it in our bedroom at about 25 feet, actually. It's crazy. And so But it can still shine. But, you know, I actually tested the Lux. It doesn't seem to impact it as much. And that may just be enough light for some people to get to the bathroom. You kind of have to assess for yourself what works for you specifically, like what makes you fall asleep well. I used to have a roommate whenever I would go to medical conferences, a friend of mine, she would room with me. And this is before I got into melatonin. And she would take a towel and put that underneath the hotel room door like so that no little amount of light would come in then she would wear an eye mask and then of course we had to make sure that the blinds were completely tucked into the window because even that little line of light can just keep somebody awake so if all else fails just wear an eye mask like a satin or silk eye mask so your face doesn't get irritated
0: all right, Dan, I'm, I'm a complete geek here. I've got my phone. What, what, <laughs> what, is, what is the Lux Meter app that you use? <laughs>
1: so it's called Light Meter.
0: Light it's meter. so
1: easy. And it basically it works with a little light on your phone and you can just scan it and just move it over. I'm doing it now just kind of move it over oh. side to side. Yeah, check it out.
0: Sweet. Well, we've got a, a few minutes left. I mean, obviously, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about supplementation. You touched on that, obviously, in your article. First of all, can we get enough melatonin from the foods we eat?
1: I would love it if we could because, you know, at (laughs) my heart, my PhD, my master's degree, I mean, I'm so nutrition focused. And so I always go to food first. And the short answer to the question is no, we cannot get enough. And I know that because we've actually worked calculations around this. So one of the things that comes up is oh, tart cherries, just have a bunch of tart cherries before you go to bed. Well, tart cherries, if you look at tart cherries, and their composition, they're great in, with respect to reducing oxidative stress. They're really great for people who have a lot of activity like physical exercise and they get injury. Really good for just overall antioxidant potential. But can you get enough melatonin from cherries in order to help endogenous levels and bring you back up to that 0.3 milligrams? No. Wow. If I have my numbers correct, I think we calculated that it was something on the order of 50 pounds of cherries mm-hmm. to get you Goodness to that level. Nice. And you also don't know because there are different kinds of cherries grown in different parts of the world mm-hmm. that have different amounts of melatonin, the mm-hmm. plant-based melatonin, and even pistachios. That's another one that has been debunked. You'd mm-hmm. have to have like thousands of pistachios mm-hmm. before bedtime in order to get to that 0.3 milligrams. So. I do think that there are cases where supplementation is warranted. I mean, I do it. It doesn't mean that I negate my diet and start eating poor, highly processed food. I always have that as a baseline. That's a given for me, but I have had, especially going through perimenopause, the need to bring in, and I've not had to do this before, unless I was traveling, but I do bring in plant melatonin. Bring in one called Herbatonin because I'm such a fan of plants. What I like about this one is that it brings in other phytochemicals. So you remember how I was talking about the lutein and the zeaxanthin mm-hmm, for the back mm-hmm. of the eye? You mm-hmm. actually also get that within the herbatonin. So mm-hmm. it's not just the plant melatonin, and it's not extracted, it's just the whole plant where it was grown to be optimized in its melatonin concentration. So there's no alcohol extract or a lot of these modifications that are typically made in supplements. One of the things that most people do not know, and I had no idea until I started to get under the hood of this, is that 99% of the melatonin on the market sold in a supplement is synthetic. So with Mm -hmm. synthetic supplements, you can get adulterants that are created in that chemical processing. So there was a paper, I think it was published in 2018, and this surfaced as we were putting together the review. And this paper in particular identified 13 different potential contaminants that can arise from synthetic production of melatonin, not to mention the air pollution. There was another article that was talking about the pollution, the chemicalization of just adding to planetary health and and causing an issue in that respect. So for me, I'm always going to go to plants first and foremost. If you look at the early forms of melatonin supplements, they were derived from the pineal gland of dead animals. So like cows, pigs, those were the typical forms until there were a lot of issues with we started to think more about prions, viral infections, and just even the practice of concentrating that from animals. And is it the same format and just safety issues there. So it's good that there are other alternatives to getting that melatonin.
2: That's a, a quick question too. So sleep issues would be probably the first thing you think, oh, it could be a melatonin issue. But what would your second symptom that could tell you there's a melatonin issue, what would your second symptom be?
1: I would say immune issues. You know, if I just stack up in my mind real quickly, all of the different body systems and what we found with respect to strength of evidence, I would say that... Sleep issues, since you're already saying, you know, I can't speak to that because that's more like on its own. And I do think that sleep issues dovetail very closely into cognitive issues. So there's that piece, I'll just say is parked there with sleep. But I do think immunity, it's been known historically, there is a group in Italy, Dr. Paolo Lassoni's group, who has done so much elegant research on the immune system and melatonin, Specifically, he looked at his population as more patients with cancer. Mm -hmm. So you can look at his studies. Dr. Russell Ryder also talks about the use of melatonin in things that would involve the immune system, like the mitochondria. There's been Mm -hmm. some elegant research on mitochondrial health and seeing its interconnection with the immune system, just overall aging and so many other things, because we know that the mitochondria is a hub for so much cellular activity. So I would say immunity, which is also, if you look at why did it come out during the pandemic, why was it being talked about? It's mm-hmm. because of a lot of this information. And here's kind of a nerd fact, okay? So I started I getting into cellular biology mm-hmm. as we started to put together this paper. And one of the things that's being talked out about out there is this thing called phase separation. It's Mm -hmm. actually called liquid-liquid phase separation. But essentially, the way that a virus takes over a cell is through these non-membrane structures. And it starts to set up a little machinery of basically all of its proteins. Mm -hmm. So what melatonin can do is it can help to interfere with this setup, this phase separation process. Now, again, that's just very emerging work. It's very preliminary, but it really speaks to, again, the antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, the mitochondrial aspects of melatonin that make it very desirable for immune health.
2: So there are a lot of candidates really for supplementation. And like we said before, beyond just people with sleep issues, there might be a lot of candidates for supplementation.
1: Absolutely. And that's why it's almost like if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So and I don't want it to be perceived as a panacea. I am Mm -hmm. definitely in the camp of personalized nutrition, personalized medicine Mm -hmm. and personalized tailored supplementation. And some people get nervous and they say one of the pushbacks has been, well, if I take melatonin, that's going to stop my endogenous production. Right. So I've actually I've looked into this because. That was also more concerning for me, too, because just even personally, I'm starting to take melatonin at a bit of a higher level than probably most people. And so what I find in the literature, there were at least four, and I think about five or six studies, if I can remember the number correctly, where they did set out to look at endogenous production based Mm -hmm. on supplementation, and they did not find that there was an impact. Now... Does that mean that we should just take melatonin forever and long-term use? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. There aren't studies that evaluate higher-dose supplementation of melatonin beyond about two years. So if I'm just being a scientist and I'm I'm just being a nerd and just saying, what do we have in the data? What do we know to be safe? That's what we see reported. Have there been other people who use high-dose melatonin more for themselves and for longer stretches of time. Yes, I mean, I definitely, now that I'm in this melatonin world, it's amazing who comes out to talk with you about their melatonin practices Mm -hmm. and what they do. But you know, I just want to say to your audience, because I know you've got health professionals, you've got more educated people who have been following health and want to optimize their health, you know, just check in with the health provider on this, Mm -hmm. you know, look at your medications, look at your lifestyle, Try to get your nutrition and lifestyle in balance first and foremost as the bedrock to anything you do, right? Because even the best supplements not going to override the oceanic effect of a bad diet, poor activity and being sedentary, all that artificial blue light. So I never want to position something as a panacea because that's just nothing that could override all of those signals. But to see it as adjunctive, I mean, somebody like me, I'm fastidious about my health. And I do need a little bit of help to just help me with transitions in life. And I think it's valid. And you always have to like pull back, reevaluate. Do you still need it? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. What so I think working with a what practitioner. What you measure at
2: that point? I'm so sorry. What could you measure at that point? The urinary excretion? Is there some tool that we could use to say, okay, now you are making enough endogenously or now your levels are fine or maybe your levels went too high?
1: I need to give you both there's this great assessment tool that we put together, kind of a list of all of the different symptoms of melatonin imbalance. Mm. And it's a laundry list. Like I would just like to, you're free to give that over as a PDF in your show notes, whatever you want to do. I think that will answer your question because it'll be kind of a nice checklist. Even as a frame of reference, like when I look at perimenopausal complaints and I kind of like eyeball, like do I have three or do I have all 12? So when people (laughs) look at, This checklist, they can do the same for themselves. Like, do they have three of those things? Well, they probably are getting better with certain aspects or do they have all of them or do they have most of them, right? So it's kind of a nice subjective gauge. And then if they're working with a practitioner, indeed, they can actually look at melatonin metabolites in the urine. I would recommend, quite honestly, not just even looking at melatonin in a narrow sense, but to look at the endocrine system in a larger sense. Let's talk about the sex steroids, looking at estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. Let's look at the glucocorticoids. So melatonin is a remarkable molecule, but it's one family member of the entire endocrine family, right? So for somebody like that who has had issues or just really depends on what their symptoms have been, their chronic conditions, I would much better advocate, I would say, for an overall endocrine assessment. Because keep in mind, as we talked about before, if we're tugging on one hormone like cortisol, that can change melatonin. For me, I'm tugging on estrogen and progesterone, that's tugging on my melatonin. Mm -hmm. So you wanna look at the breadth of looking at all of these different hormones. And the lab that I love for that is Dutch. I do think that Dutch has done a lot in terms of their methodology. I started to learn much more about them and can really appreciate all of the different aspects of the metabolism of hormones. It's not sometimes just the absolute hormone. Do I have enough Mm -hmm. of melatonin or not? Yay or nay, binary response. It's also, what is my body doing with melatonin? What is my body doing with estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, Mm -hmm. cortisol? Are there metabolites that are askew and even problematic from a symptom point of view? we know that about some of the hydroxylated hormone metabolites. So I think it's better rather than to like get pigeonholed into one thing, look bigger and broader into the whole, I would say the endocrine landscape.
0: Very cool. Well, we got to wrap this up soon. But I, I did want to ask just the final question. Obviously, we're not recommending treating oneself or making these are all recommendations, I guess, but recommended dosaging. I mean, I think that's something that From a personal perspective, I'm interested in what would be an appropriate dose for someone like myself or my wife, who's also going through perimenopause as well. But just recommended dosaging for (laughs) melatonin based on conditions that are being treated.
1: Well, that is a big question. And I would think that if we left the podcast without that, we would be remiss because, again, that's part of the personalization, right? So if I think of I have defaulted to a lot of the giants in this area who have done the research over the years. I mentioned Dr. Russell Ryder. There was another researcher by the name of Dick Wertman, who was at MIT and who did a lot of this early work on melatonin. And one of Dr. Wertman's studies had shown that when they tested three different dosages, one was low, one was high, and then there was one in the middle, kind of the Goldilocks at 0.2 3 milligrams that they found the best response. And if you look in the paper, there is that one of the first figures in the paper where it shows again that roller coaster of like melatonin being very high as a child and then going down. If we're just thinking about repletion, how do we just get our adult levels back if we're in our 50s? I would say that that 0.3 milligrams fits very nicely with that level, right? It kind of matches the graph. So. And I mentioned for myself that I'm doing six milligrams now. Why would I do that? Well, there can be instances where you may need more in order to override things like genetics. Mm-hmm. Like if you do have certain gene variants in cytochrome 1A2, or perhaps you need more for more of the antioxidant, anti-inflammatory benefit, right? So with jet lag, higher doses are normally advise, like starting at three milligrams and going upwards, but that is Mm -hmm. more of a short term use. That's kind of like, let's just say I went from Seattle to Stockholm. That is about nine hours difference. Mm -hmm. So in Stockholm, as soon as I would land and it becomes close to bedtime, I'm trying to get on that circadian rhythm. So then I'm going to take a high dose of melatonin at bedtime in Stockholm, right? And I'm going to do that for about three consecutive days thereafter. So that's a higher dose than somebody normally would take. That's very supported by the literature. And again, sometimes you have to tweak that depending on your own kinetics. Some people are fast metabolizers and they need a little bit more. I happen to be one of those fast metabolizers, Mm -hmm. which is why I need a little bit more. But for the average population, if we're just talking about melatonin repletion as a middle-aged person, we're talking about 0.3 milligrams, which is based on the Wertmann research and is also based on the natural curve and decline of melatonin endogenously.
0: Very cool.
2: Yeah. Well, gosh, you know. I feel
1: like we could be talking about this like nonstop. Yeah, <laughs> There's well, so
0: yeah. much. <laughs> so we non-stop. didn't
1: even get it's into coming. the gut. We didn't even talk about like Whoa. there are all these many features and facets that are emerging. It's like so much research continues to come out on melatonin. It just, it's amazing, you know, how many people are very interested in it.
2: Yeah. You have to do a sequel. Well, we that'd
0: will be great. Definitely, uh, obviously be linking your great article is Melatonin the Next Vitamin D, where I, you know, Super. you cover a lot of this stuff. And thank you very much for sharing your time with us and your expertise. Any final little nuggets that you want to share with the group before we sign off?
1: Well, everybody feel free to reach out to me as well in terms of the paper, I think, provides like the biggest picture for people. And what I would like to leave everybody with is I really want to stress the following. Number one, working with a healthcare practitioner to better optimize your health. Even if you are a healthcare practitioner, come on, we all have blind spots, right? (laughs) We we all need to be taken care of. And I find that health practitioners are probably the worst at taking care of themselves and they don't make the time for the labs. They don't make and I advise people like every birthday you have, Give yourself Mm -hmm. the gift of just getting all of your labs done. Get all those hormone Mm -hmm. labs, get Mm -hmm. all of your CBC, your CMP, just like get it Mm -hmm. all done so that you're knowledgeable and you're well-informed. So number one, even if you're a health professional, work with other health professionals. That's so key. And then number two, in functional medicine, we're so focused on the personalized lifestyle factors, right? Looking at all of the many parts of the matrix, which would be the food, which is the one I feel most passionate about. Then you've got physical activity, lifestyle, how we live our lives, how we think, all of that is extremely relevant. And then I think number three, to be thinking about therapeutic supplementation with high quality products as needed and as determined by a healthcare practitioner, together with your symptoms and to constantly be Reevaluating that, right? Because doses, life changes, transitions are going to get you to be looking at things. And by the way, I'm so glad that we're talking about men's health too and andropause, because this is, to me, it's kind of like darkness deficiency isn't talked about. And I don't mm-hmm. think andropause is talked about enough. And what happens with men kind of going through their own transitions. So constantly reevaluate that. And I'll give to both of you our darkness deficiency questionnaire it's just very it's like one page somebody can just like click through and say oh yeah this is me this is not me or here's what you can do we have a little snippet at the bottom too about like what you can do like with blue blocking glasses Mm -hmm. and then i'll also give you the melatonin insufficiency assessment and these are more tools for health professionals but i think
2: it's fine oh, if you want to share you. them with your larger thank community. You.
0: Yeah. And Beth Allen wrote a phenomenal white paper on andropause for ODX. So, you know, 20 pages,
2: a... as you know, just scratches the surface, right?
0: Yeah, of course. Maybe. Oh my gosh. I would <laughs> but... love
2: to have that. Oh,
1: yeah, I would love yeah, that. We definitely get a copy mm. for you.
0: And menopause as well. So, bringing it back down to the personal here, what are three things that you do on a daily basis to take care of your optimal health?
1: Oh my gosh. Number one, hydration. Hydration, hydration. You know, there's mm-hmm. so much talk yep. right now about water, hydration. What is mm-hmm. optimal hydration? You know, we could do like a whole podcast on hydration because it's been something that I've been looking into as well. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. So, when I wake up, eight ounces, I don't know if you've ever heard of Sole, Sole therapy, like where you take a super saturated Himalayan crystal salt solution and you take just a little bit with all those trace minerals. You put mm. that into eight ounces of purified water and then you have better uptake of water. So, mm-hmm. I, hydrate Mm -hmm. throughout the day. So that's number one, the moment I wake up. Number two, I would say that I like to encourage a lot of diversity in my eating. So I talk a lot about eating the rainbow, which has been Mm -hmm, something, mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, all those phytonutrients, but it's not even just getting the rainbow. It's like getting diversity of each color within the color. So, you know, I remember somebody saying to me, oh, Deanna, but I eat tomatoes every day. So I get the red. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, That's not enough. It's Mm -hmm. actually like diversity of red, like Mm -hmm. cranberries, strawberries, raspberries, shake it up. When we are in food ruts, we many times tend to be in life ruts. So Mm -hmm. diversity is really key for me in terms of my food. In fact, my husband sometimes gets irritated because I make breakfast for both of us. Breakfast is like my big meal. Mm -hmm. And one morning, I remember him looking down at the plate. And he said, Deanna, this is way too much diversity. <laughs> you know, I put, <laughs> I put oh, little garnishes. I, I do microgreens. I do like a couple of different <laughs> berries. And he's like, that's he's nice. not a morning person. So to him, it's just like, oh my gosh, oh, too much. But no way. The science is sound on dietary diversity. So that's number two. And then number three, I would say movement mm-hmm. is a hack that I am not so good with. I'm just going to be straight. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
0: i gotta be get well, better it at it i don't know why but it is i mean for oh some it's people, easy it's i mean easy. you can introduce go ahead <laughs>
2: <laughs> before i got of bed i do my crunches i do 600 crunches while i listen to 600 NPR. that's my minimum oh do my it gosh. you start with listen i'm telling you in 10 minutes you can do 600 crunches you just get used to it you condition what? before i get out of bed i've done that it's so helpful it really is and then another 600 watching the news at night
1: Okay, what I need you doing? as a coach because that is very inspiring. <laughs> How the heck am I ever going to do 600 crunches? <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm, th- I'm thinking. I'm... Of, okay, I do. Um, <laughs> I do Joe Macola's five compound movement exercises. Oh, now
1: yeah. that sounds doable. I hear five, and it's like
0: okay. Yeah, so so you, yeah, you do 10 sets of each one. Look it up on YouTube, Joe Macola. I'm going to do that. Yeah, I'm going to do that. It's, it's pretty fun. I mean, he's hysterical in his tiny <laughs> way. He's doing it, but yeah.
1: I'm so glad to hear your strategies because it's now a necessity. It's not even like a nice to have or a nice to do. It's a must have Mm -hmm. at my age to take care of my musculoskeletal health. In fact, we just recently published a blog on the gut muscle access. And I think you both know that there's so much good information coming out about muscle that we didn't Mm -hmm. know before. And especially for andropause. Oh my gosh, just, and it's so replete with so many mitochondria, mitochondria, again, melatonin. So For me, I'm working through that one and trying to diversify my movements. Strength training is now, and I used to be like really big into yoga, which helped me to be very bendy, but it didn't help me be strong. Mm. So now I'm focused on strength and building that muscle is only helping me further with testosterone, which starts to decline also in women that are my age, cortisol, you know, blood sugar modulation. So that's number three. I can't stress enough how important movement is, whether or not we like it, we have to do it. We just learn to have to, learn to find what we got to learn to love. It. And I'm going to have that 600 crunches in my head now because I like goals. And I need to like, wow, I use my aura ring to track that kind of stuff. So I'm going to see what happens when I do all those crunches. Well, start awesome.
0: slow. You know, start slow. Of course. Yeah, you got to do 600. You're going to really hurt yourself.
2: Oh, don't. Yeah, don't do that.
1: You know what, though? There is research to suggest that doing. Physical exercise earlier in the day is better for the parasympathetic nervous system, right? So what I have done is just classically in the morning, I focus on hydration, I eat Mm -hmm. that diverse breakfast, and then I do something physically active. And like my method of like what I like the most is I live in a very rural forested area. So I Mm -hmm. go and walk outside in nature and do forest bathing. So when it comes to like nighttime activities, I usually curtail those because what I have seen anyway is more sympathetic rise. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, I don't need that at bedtime. But maybe animals, too. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) But maybe with those kinds of the crunches, you know, maybe it's a Mm -hmm. little bit different. I don't know. But I'm going to try to weave that in. Thank you for that tip.
0: You're welcome. (laughs) Well, anything coming up, any events that you're doing that our group would be interested in, how you have your website, dianaminick.com. And this is an opportunity for shameless self-promotions.
1: Yes. I have a certification program that I haven't run since 2018. So I'm back at it. And people love this program because it's very integrated. It's physiological. It's psychological. So it's called the Certified Food and Spirit Practitioner Program. It is only for practitioners, however. So let me just say that. And more details can be found at foodandspirit.com, and and is spelled out A-N-D. So that's what I have coming, and that starts September 11th this year. And plus on my website, deannaminick.com, I have all of my events listed. You know, I'll be at IFM, I'll be at A4M next month. I'm back on the speaking circuit, I must say. like, I kind of feel like this is pre-pandemic in the way of what I used Mm -hmm. to be doing. Now I'm just... Traveling all over the place, so I'm definitely taking my herbatonin with me. That's for sure. <laughs> that's
0: <awesome. laughs> all those time zones. Very cool, mm-hmm. Beth. Any final words?
2: Thank you so much, Diana. I've listened to you for years, and I'm so glad we got a chance to talk in person and interview you. And it's been wonderful. I just I love your approach to life. It's awesome.
1: Oh, thank you. I will and I have
0: absolutely second that, Diana. Thank
1: you. Oh, thank you. It's nice to connect with both of you, and I love the Rhode Island connection. So I'll (laughs) tell my husband this morning, whenever I see him, I'm going to mention that to him. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, definitely. Rhode
0: Island and crunches.
1: Yes, don't forget those. (laughs) Okay, sounds great. um,
0: Deanna, thank you very, very much for again, taking time out of your busy day to share your wisdom with us. Thank you, Beth, for joining us. And for those of you that are listening, thanks for taking your time to listen to Optimal the Podcast. My name is Dr. Dickon Weatherby. If you want to find out more about Optimal DX and what we're doing, please come on over to OptimalDX.com. We've got two blogs. We have Optimal the blog, and we also have a research blog. And if you're interested in joining the ODX membership, that is available for you as well at ODX. And so thanks for listening. I'm Dick and Weatherby. Take care.